Welcome to the Work Design Podcast. Listen to the world's greatest leaders share their stories and secrets on how they designed and built the best places to work. We'll shine a light on the challenges and breakthroughs of designing org charts, optimizing teams, and building jobs that people love. This is for modern leaders who are building the best teams at scale. Let's make work work better. Welcome. Today, our guest is Giles Anderton um, from Canter and Ball. Uh, Canter and Ball is a product delivery and digital disruption, digital digital transformation agency. Uh, Thank you very much, Damien. We also have with me um, today uh, Damien Bramanis, co-founder at Functionally. Um, We have the privilege of uh, bringing this podcast to you today, talking about all things work design. Uh, which is job design, team design, and org design. Um, Giles, fantastic to uh, have you here on the podcast today. Um, Tell us a little bit about your experience uh, from probably the first time you had to lead a team or ended up in in management through your experience over the years developing that skill. Thanks, Tim and Damien. It's uh, great to be here. Um, Well, yeah, uh, I suppose I accidentally got involved in management after being a software engineer for a long time and product manager but I mean I was working in Sydney uh, I guess uh, 20 something years ago and I was the I was in an engineering team of 15 uh, people and the five senior people in the team all quit on the same day and uh, then the business started looking towards me because I think because of the background I'd had in the music industry and promoting gigs, I'd always been focused on, you know, caring about what people using the systems that we were building were and that sort of stuff. So I'd naturally thought about the business a bit more than perhaps the other developers in the team. And uh, that's really when I started getting promoted into more uh, sort of technical leadership and then, you know, development management type roles. Um, and, you know, through through that over the, over the years, I... Um, I got into more and more, I guess, running large programs of work and managing teams of developers and, uh, and doing all sorts of consulting work around the globe. Um, you know, I moved to the UK in 2005 uh, and uh, almost immediately was, was sort of managing consultants, doing consulting work on you know, software delivery implementation projects and eventually ended up um, around 2009 running the Guardian's digital delivery function um, you know, for a couple of years, and then I set up Counter and Ball in 2011. And th- through Counter and Ball, I've done a lot of interim, interim director level roles, managing all sorts of teams. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, these days I'm, I'm pretty bought into the self-organising multidisciplinary team approach, and you know, getting those people together. And I'm fascinated by mm. uh, how do you get smart, creative people <laughs> to work together well. You know, without it being a, a nightmare. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, this is definitely the place to uh, <laughs> come and hang out if, if that's what you're into. Um, a couple, couple of quick questions. So break it down for us. What's the um, what kind of size teams did you end up having to coordinate lead um, at the at the peak uh, in terms of headcount, Con- contractor uh, and employee, all inclusive? I think the largest team. I've been involved in in directly sort of managing is about 300 ish. Uh, that was for a that was kind of as a 
interim handhelding responsibility at the Government Digital Service in the UK. Um, and, you know, otherwise there's been a few teams of 100, 150-ish yep. along the way. I mean, the Guardian team was probably the first role that was more than sort of 50, 30, 40 people, and that was around the 100 mark. Um, you know, predominantly developers and designers and product managers type thing. Do, awesome. do you think things change? So you, you said that there were a few teams much bigger than, than 30 or 40 people. Do you, think, did you, do you think things change once you get to a scale of oh, many of tens or hundreds of people? Yeah. So I think, I think uh, you know, I think a startup starts with the idea that uh, we're going to have a flat structure and there's going to be no management yeah. and yeah. You know, all that stuff. And I think that starts to break around 12 people. Mm-hmm. Um, then I, So I think there's somewhere in that 12 to 20 thing you need to just put in a little bit of process so the yeah. new people that are turning up actually know how to find out and discover the information that the three people that started the thing do and all those things and i think there's a there's a there's a around the 30 mark where things start to break a bit as well so so what what breaks at that point uh i think really you've now just by the time you've got to 30 you've yeah. got you've been going sufficiently long usually uh, where, um, you know, formal the, – the people that have come on – there are people on board that weren't there at the start and the people – you know, sometimes all the people that were there at the start with some aspects. And, yeah. and bear in mind, I've always been involved with the technology and product delivery side of these things. So I, I'm really speaking from that that realm. And so, you know, early on, a lot of – I mean, a lot of the time, practices – I suppose DevOps is helping a lot with this because you're automating a lot of these these technical mm-hmm. um, th- things now. But, you know, 10, 20 years ago, you would have a situation where the people that started, they, they'd cut corners, like, you know, because it's a small business and mm-hmm. you, you can't, don't have much time. And, you know, for all good reasons, things just don't happen. So whether, so by the time that you come to 30, you, you're probably, you know, you're probably well beyond product market fit. You're probably at... Yeah needing to stabilize the, the product, you know, the tech stack is probably creaking or there's bits of it that's a bit spaghetti-like and some of it's not documented. And now you've got staffing, you know, you've got new people there helping professionalize it or yeah. made it, you know, make it better in some way. And, uh, and you also don't have any of the historical information because a lot of us walked out of the door and it wasn't documented or yeah you know it's not it hasn't sort of seeped through the um the brain of the organization so, so it's sort of three waves all crashing at the same time there's the technology mistakes of the past that come crashing with the people changes as the organization grows and then also this you don't have all of the information that you need yeah. so everything comes crashing down at the same time totally and i think that really starts to kick in at 30 people mm-hmm. um i think once you get past that once you get you know, into the sort of more up around the 60, 70, 80 mm-hmm. mark, maybe a little bit more depending on the organisation. You know, you start getting to the point where you you need to have, you know, you've got a lot more middle management. Yeah. Um, and I think once you're starting to get middle management, uh, you know, i.e. Where, where there are people whose job it is to manage other managers mm-hmm. and, and they're not the executive, um, then I th- by that point you've, you're starting to get really quite complicated um, communication channels and usually they're not as well looked after as they could be shall we say yeah well <laughs> let's dig into some of that um we often when we're talking to um CEOs out in the field they talk about that process feeling like it's breaking 
or they're spinning <laughs> plates and uh, or are on fire. And no matter what they do, fires just keep lighting everywhere around them. And they all they want to do is become more strategic as the organisation gets bigger. But what they're really doing is getting more and more into the trenches of that firefighting um, that goes on when you've got these layers of middle management. Um, tell us about um, some through the the lineage of your experiences. Um, in the UK, particularly where you're leading much bigger teams, what are some of the crazy things that you saw going on that you felt were related to the design of the organisation or a team, as opposed to you know people problems that other people may have looked at and gone, oh that that person's just nuts. We were actually well, actually I think we've got a design issue there. Um, I know of I know of a place that's you know that they have they have purpose built tech. That, that was specifically built with um, multiple applications for that organisation in place, and the people organisation has has <laughs> the way that's been um, the responsibility for that ownership of that organisationally has been shifted two or three times yeah. to the point now where no one actually understands that that tech exists, despite the fact that they spent millions. Building mm. it, and the, all the remain or the original people, the people that know about that, just aren't there anymore. And I look at that as total like that's the worst case of waste to me. You know, you've actually gone to the effort of building this thing that could be useful in a lot of contexts. And this is an organisation that really could use the, the obvious revenue that can come from deploying that in multiple areas that it hasn't. Uh, you know, I see things like that, and I think that's happened because different part or as they've changed who who it reports to they've seen it as a very specific oh that's for this vertical not for that one that kind of thing mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a bit heartbreaking too to the people who would have been there in the beginning to to see to know that the thing that they were so involved with is now that like their work goes to waste it's not, it's not just a shame for the company but it also is a shame for the individuals it's I, demotivating i think it's a thing that that you know 10 years ago when we would meet and have beer um, and talk about those that stuff. It would be painful. Yeah. And now it's morphed into more of it's sort of funny. Yeah. But I, yeah, it's either way. It's sort of I don't know. I think we're very good at constructing big organisations of people all trying to be busy and and wanting to be in charge of stuff instead of working, you know, more cohesively and collaboratively in teams. And so th this is the sort of outcome. And I think the the org design is is a big part of that. Um, you know, is yeah. that, I don't feel like I've really answered your question very well, to be honest. Yeah, no, no. So really, uh, I, we're really interested in the pain that happens in the organisation. So what the what pain it is that you feel, that other people in your team feel, um, when it's, things start to stretch and, and become un misaligned. And look, I, I think wastage, which is yeah. um, what you're talking about, it's a huge part of that, where things are going on in the organisation and people don't even know. That yep. might be talk of a system, but I'm sure there's situations where people are working on stuff, spending time, effort, and energy, uh, and no one realises that they're doing that, and that that can come as to a pretty painful end. But Often, once it's discovered, and people are rectifying it on the on the fly. I think, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you you know you work, in, particularly the I think the thing that the startup has that has is the ability to be nimble. Yeah. It's not constrained by this stuff, but. You know, a bigger organisation. I mean, once you get past five hundred employees, and then you know, bigger than that. I mean, you start getting into fiefdoms, and you know, you're well past Dunbar limits. Yeah. So, how do you, you know, see? So 
you know, how many organisations are there? I mean, look, look at this town here. I mean, how many organisations in this town that are employing thousands of people mm. have basically multiple teams focused on the same problem and those teams aren't even talking to each other. So, so tell us about Dunbar Limits because that's the first time it's come up on the podcast. I'm really interested to hear your, your thoughts on that. Oh, so Dunbar, um, that's going to test me now, but the Dunbar, Dunbar Limits about, I think it's 130 odd. Dunbar is a psychologist from, I think from the 60s uh, and he, he wrote a paper, which I can't remember the name of, but it's all really about uh, how many... Uh, relationships you can effectively hold on to as a human mm-hmm. being and like and, and actually have a relationship and that's, not necessarily a friendship but I think where that relates to the workplace and designing mm-hmm. uh, working organizations is groups of people collaborate and function uh, and perform better when they all everyone knows each other in some way yeah and beyond that you're now beyond the capacity that an individual has to even be able to have a you know, place a name to a face necessarily. Mm-hmm. So you, you, as soon as you go over Dunbar limits, you go beyond. You, what it means is that you've got you're adding pressure to everyone in the team to do more work with people that they don't necessarily have a relationship with. Yeah. And so how that actually manifests through those things is different. So so how do you deal with that? I mean, there's there are some there are some people that advocate. Well, as soon as you get to 120 people, you have a completely new company. Others are, you know, you don't have departments bigger than a hundred. And what, 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 sort of what do you? What's your personal opinion? What do you think happens once you once you stretch beyond the number of people you can actually realistically know? What what should you do at an organisation once it grows? What have you done in the past? I don't really think it matters that much whether they work in the same organisation or not. But I think they should be working in. You should keep your working groups much below Dunbar limits. Yeah, you know and. Uh, you know, so like I think a program of work, you know, if you talk about the sort of right at the coalface, the, the, a sort of classic d- multidisciplinary delivery team, you want to keep that sort of in the 7 to 11 type group of people because they can, and if you can get them focused on something and then they're en- enabled to do what they need to do, that's how that's how you'll have the most efficient success there, I think. Mm-hmm. Um so doing that is is complicated. So then you have to break down. Yeah. Then you've got there's only so much work that many people can actually do. So a bigger program, so a bigger piece of technology, whether it's whether it's a portfolio or a program or however you're organising, you know, you're running the work. Mm-hmm. I think you need to map those teams to you know keep them within uh, something that seven to ten people can actually hold in their heads at the same time. Yeah. There's an amazing book that's just been released. Team topologies by uh, Matthew Skelton and Manu- Manuel Paz, Paz, but mm-hmm. that talks all about cognitive load, you know, and and keeping within cognitive load limits of the team. So don't don't put a team on a piece of you know they're focused on software. Don't put them onto a piece of um, something that they can't that team can't have in their head conceptually. Yeah, like, so keep their the work, keep limit. the work small. And yeah. keep, keep the work and the team small enough that they can actually yeah. um, hold it, hold it in their head. The people and the and the work. Yeah, and I think mm-hmm. that relates to the individual, the team, and then the program. And mm-hmm. I think at the so the program or portfolio, when that comes down to the organisation, there is there's how big those things can be be built together. Yeah. So I just think Dunbar limits is one of those, one of one of the, um, one of the chunks. Yeah. And. You know, much like I think putting 
putting five people on a project will often be much more successful than putting a hundred people on the same project. Yeah, you know, for many reasons, keeping a, a entire department to under eighty is uh, yeah. more sensible than making it a thousand. So that's that's one of the things that we've seen. So you said that that you see that organisations break once they hit around thirty people. We've seen that that's maybe the point where you can't keep it in your head anymore. Where if it was a 10-person organization, you know all of the work and you know what everyone does. But at a 50-person organization, that's impossible. So that yeah. perhaps that point is, is where you can't hold things in your head any longer. Yeah, so I think that's the cognitive load limit yeah. of that sort of thing is the, the cognitive load limit of, of a, a team working on a thing. I don't think that's okay for a, a whole department to be doing 20 different things at once in groups of 10. Mm-hmm. or sort of eight things in groups of 10. And then and then you have the management of that. There is an administrative overhead, obviously. And yep. then how are you documenting and communicating, really how are you communicating that and keeping everyone with a shared level of understanding? Yep. And I think it's the, the shared understanding thing is the point for me. The shared understanding and continuous improvement. You know, so so how, you, how do you do that? How do you get people to a shared understanding? I think context and actual people is what matters. You know, yeah. uh, is there a startup here that's not using Slack and, and all? You know, everyone's working in coffee shops. That's that works for people that are in that context. Mm-hmm. More traditional organisations need, you know, there needs to be a, a weekly, you know, email from the CEO. Or from my point of view, I, I think it's really about how people in the organisation want to work together and what what communication they respond to. Yeah, and then I think. It's starting with whatever that is, and then it's spending time, you know, across the organisation focused on continuous improvement so you can actually make those things, you know, improve them and make them more efficient. Yeah. I think one of the challenges with email is that you just get bombarded with email to, mm. you know, I'm sure all of us who worked through the uh, 90s and 2000s have got o- email overload. But, you know, the same thing is happening with Slack where, you know, you get added to a Slack channel. There's way, you know, everyone's, there's no policy, there's no policy yeah. around it. And the problem isn't really Slack or email. The problem is the policies around how to use those things. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I think understanding the context and what the actual problem is. You know, if, if a department is doing or if a company is doing three different things, how connected are those three things? And in which case, how much does it matter that everyone's across what everyone's doing? What, yeah. You know, if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm a software engineer working on, you know, making sure the uh, website doesn't blow up, what level of information do I need to know about the nuts and bolts of what the marketing team is doing for the entire company or mm-hmm. the sales team and all that? Now, I, sh- I have an interest and I want to understand. Yeah, that's um, right. You know, but then I think different companies and different contexts and different people care about care about these things differently. And in, cl- in fact, even inside the same company, different people and feel differently about this. And it's where you're, when you're at the, the company offsite, everyone can focus because you don't have all the alarms going and off, all the emails coming in and all of the, the things happening around you. It's, it's a lot more conducive to work. It's amazing the things that get put in place to, to, uh, yep. <laughs> to take time out from the bombardment and waste of communication and trying to achieve a shared understanding that, that yeah. where a lot of these organizational fr- frustrations are. Frank Lama's Functional Five. So question one, what do you need to be functional? <laughs> uh, a strategy and support mm-hmm. or a vision, really. I don't really need mm. a strategy. I can come up with that, but yeah. A vision. Yeah, I want, I want, I want, yeah. You need a vision and you need the support around you to do it. 
you know, I don't think you can do anything of note on your own. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, question two. In work design, who inspires you or who would you like to hear from on the, the podcast in the future? Oh, so many people. That I've, I've literally just finished reading that Team Topologies book, so it's in my head, and I think it's, it's a step change. It's, it's a, I mean, I think it's a lot of ideas that have been talked about in the DevOps community for a, a period now, but I think that's a really great book. And so Matthew Skelton and Manuel Pass, I like that stuff. It's very tech-focused um, uh, organisationally. I suppose, you know, um, I'd love to hear from um, more behavioural psychologists. Mm. I mean, the Thinking Fast and Slow book's coming to my mind. I can't remember, Daniel, I can't remember the guy's name. But yeah, we'll, it's we'll, more we'll the... We'll fact check yeah. that. We'll fact check <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's Daniel a, someone. I'm not sure if he's still easy alive. Easy people to get in contact with. If you've uh, got contacts <laughs> out there with any of those authors, we'd be more than happy to uh, interview them uh, on, on the podcast. Correct. Uh, question, question three. Uh, what's your favorite shortcut or hack that you've you've done with work design? Uh, walking meetings. Mm, nice mm, one. Yeah, great. That's a good call. And if you could uh, make it all over again, if you to do what you've done again, what would you choose to tackle or break first as it relates to work design and org structure? Almost certainly whatever departmental silos exist. Yeah, break, break yeah. the silos. And uh, question five, um, actually, which is the most valuable resource asset. I'm just going to get you to call out that book again on Team Topology. Yeah, uh, it's just really fresh in my mind. Team Topologies, uh, Matthew Skelton. and right. yeah. We'll, um, we'll go search for that and pop the links, um, links in the uh, information about the, the uh, podcast so people can find that. And you also mentioned Dunbar Limits as well which has a, a bunch of uh, great information online. We'll, we'll go and make sure we, we find some links to that for people. Uh, any final questions before we um, say goodbye, Damien? Any last little hints or any oddball tips that you, you've come across? I think the main thing for anyone involved in looking at org design is to try your best to remove your immediate desire to instantly provide solutions. Mm. You know, I think... When you consider starting a new directorship or new management job and you think in the 30, 60, 90 day thing, I think you should be very, very careful about spending the first 30 to 60 days learning rather than trying to make changes. Great, great advice. Thank you so much, Giles. It's been great having you here today. There's been some really, really good tips and, and key takeaways there. So thank you again and hope to speak to you soon. Yeah, thanks very much. Awesome. Great having you on the show. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining Tim and Damien, co-founders of Functionally, on their quest to make work work better. If this episode has given you value, please share this with another leader and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe now to make sure you're among the first to listen to the next episode of the Work Design Podcast. For more about the latest in global work design trends, head to Functionally.com and sign up for our monthly work design publication.